This is Decoding Healthcare. I'm Kevin Ban, And I'm John Fox. But don't get used to me today because you'll be hearing a fresh and far more mellifluous voice than mine on today's podcast. My good friend and colleague here at Athena, Jessica Sweeney-Platt, will be stepping in to join Kevin for the next few episodes. Be gone with you, John Fox. Oh, come on, Kevin. Mellifluous. Be nice. I, I don't even think I pronounced that correctly. But you are right. Jess is fantastic. You know, here at Athena, she sets strategy for our relationships with large healthcare systems. Not only, uh, she also has co-led a lot of research uh, into the Athena network to understand best practices. Subsequently, she's a serious healthcare wonk who has deep insight into really what makes things click and how providers can use technology more efficiently. Well, we're lucky to have a deep bench here at Decoding Healthcare. And in this installment, Jess and Kevin will dig into a topic that's near and dear to my anthropologist's heart, using global examples to shine a light on practices that can be approved here in the United States. Our guide in this journey was Dr. Prabhjot Singh, director of the Arnhold Institute of Global Health and chair of the Department of Health System Design and Global Health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Not only, Prabhjot is also the author of a fantastic book that came out in 2016, Dying and Living in the Neighborhood, A Street-Level View of America's Healthcare Promise. Kevin, I cannot recommend this book enough. Uh, I got introduced to it and to Prabhjot by our senior editor here at Athena Insight, who's described it as her manual for writing about the current healthcare landscape. And now that I've read it, I can see why. What I love most about this book is the sense of hope and opportunity in the pages Um, It's really about what ideas are working on the ground and how can we systematize those ideas and this idea of street level of care. It's a very powerful concept. I agree 100%, really. You know, in our interview with Prabhjot, he connected the dots between this community level, the individual level, the view of care that's so crucial to keep patients and populations well, and then, you know, the system level and, and where the policies need to be made and what type of reform we're going to need. Fascinating. Well, we talked about what's needed to build true capability for frontline caregivers in these communities. We discussed the need for small data that is relevant and actionable in moments of care alongside the big data. Uh, And we talked about a patient called Ray who fell through the cracks and how things might have happened differently. Let's dive in and have a listen. Prajot, you grew up in Kenya. Has that shaped your perspective and how you approach the work that you do? Yeah, you know, I spent my childhood in Kenya, and I think more importantly, my family has been in East Africa for about 100 years. And through the stories of learning about my parents, my grandparents, great-grandparents in the region, I really was impressed by the richness of how much they were do-it-yourself sort of people and how much they worked really hard to learn Swahili, the language that's spoken in that area. They built businesses with Kenyans. They took part in helping organize some of the first unions in, in Kenya. And they, they basically they got to really know the place so much so that I, you know, even though I spent my childhood there, it feels like a place that's very familiar to me. I think the way that it's really shaped uh, my my work here in the United States is that I always remember that there's other ways to do things. And it's so imprinted into my memory as a child, as a young adult growing up, that however smart we think we are, 
however many experts or, you know, uh, how confident we feel about a set of solutions, there's just different ways to approach it. And I can't forget that. <laughs> and uh, that's really how Kenya stays with me as I do work here. I was really struck in some of your writing about healthcare and structures of healthcare outside of the United States. And, you know, it strikes me that we associate more technology and more kind of complexity with a higher degree of quality of care to a certain extent, and that that is not the case in some of the other countries that you've worked in. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the conflation of sort of complexity of care or technological intensity of care and how that is different in, in different parts of the world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I've spent most most of the time that I've spent working in the global settings have been across sub-Saharan Africa, ranging from East to West Africa. And I usually do so in very rural places. And so in these contexts, there's a incredible pressure on budgets, you know, to the degree that maybe even unrecognizable uh, to us in the U.S. And as a result, one thing that people know for certain is that you may not have tools or technology or even sometimes infrastructure. But one thing that I think we often overlook in the U.S. is people. And, you know, that may come as an odd thing to say because, you know, obviously people play such a huge role in healthcare jobs, um, in the growth of the U.S. healthcare sector. But what I mean by that is wherever you see will and skill in communities, in all of the settings I've worked in abroad, people take that very seriously because they have to. There's oftentimes no skilled, trained clinical practitioner in an uh, entire area. And so instead, you've got to take that will and skill from communities and then start to identify, you know, through really rigorous selection processes, who is not only willing to but able to step up and take part in care. And what you get as a result of that real high-pressure process is a very different dialogue from, you know, patient engagement, um, caregiver support, which we hear in the U.S., but actually a, a recognition that the health of a community is and the healthcare system are kind of forged hand-in-hand, hand, literally. Um, and so the seriousness with which we think about community-based care in global settings making sure people are equipped with systems, mobile phones, rapid diagnostic tests, backpacks that carry, um, you know, uh, diagnostics and, and other things, um, you know, is to a level of seriousness because it's, it's necessary. But as a result, there's also a kind of open secret in the rest of the world that people can do a lot more than we think they can do. It's interesting. In, in season one of Decoding Healthcare, I talked a little bit about my experience working over in Italy, you know, single-payer model, socialized medicine, and how humbling it was to almost make fun of the types of things that they were doing. They were thinking about populations. And then to come back to the United States, get involved in value-based care, and to find ourselves replicating the very same things. What are the things, when you think about um, your experience uh, working in, in small communities where, uh, you know, resources are scarce. What are those things that you've been able to kind of pluck out and then apply in the communities here in the United States? 
Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the most clear examples that we've been able to identify is the use of a rapidly trained community health worker who knows their community, who is trained to do a very limited and targeted set of tasks, some of which which are social, some of which are clinical. In global settings, it may be a child with a fever Somebody in the neighborhood is trained to assess if they have malaria or pneumonia and then treat them on the spot. Now, we can't do that in the U.S., but what we can do is recognize that people that have chronic conditions like diabetes, depression, anxiety, heart disease, they have a lot of you know, clinical and social challenges in their context, in their homes, living with their condition. And so... You know, one thing that we really recognized is that there's a lot of work on care coordination related to chronic conditions, but there isn't such a huge emphasis on continuous skill building in the people themselves around self-management. And that is a real opportunity for a, uh, a skilled network of health coaches or community health workers in neighborhoods. And so, you know, that's one example where you see really excellent evidence being produced about the results at places like the Penn Center for Community Health Workers. And you also see actual enterprises starting to build services around that in the U.S., like City HealthWorks, which I have an affiliation to. Um, and I think the opportunity is that, you know, this is scratching the surface of, of you know, what are the analogs that we can find in global settings that we could potentially repurpose or refocus for our specific needs here. That's one example. So full disclosure, you are a physician. My friend Kevin here is a physician. I am not a physician, but I'm sitting here listening to you and and thinking, yeah, that is that is intuitively right answer. And then I think, gosh, is that a hard sell to bring a model like that to the United States and is there resistance from the physician community or from the clinical community more generally to to bring what sounds like non-clinical providers into the healthcare delivery system how do you how do you think about some of those cultural barriers that might not appear on paper yeah i mean first of all you know what a critical question there's a huge difference between is it possible and is it effective and do we want to do it and should people be allowed to do it? I think it's important to separate that because in the first bucket, is it possible, is it effective? You can look at how people are doing things across the world and say, look, if you can treat a pneumonia and a fever with antibiotics in a safe, high-quality way in a household by a mother in Liberia, you know, a mother in Akron, Ohio can probably do that. That's a very different question from saying, should we do that? You know, should we make that possible? Uh, but we shouldn't confuse the two. Let me give you a great example I've I've learned. In Alaska, as you may know, it's a you know huge hundreds of square miles, a very sparsely uh, populated geography, and one of the huge challenges people face, and you can appreciate, is that if you have a dental carry or cavity or a tooth abscess, and you are you know six hours away. Uh, 10 hours away or just can't find a dentist, you're going to be pretty close to getting some pliers uh, given how painful it can be. And that's not you know, a good idea if you don't know what you're doing. And so they built a group of people called dental health um, assistant therapists and started essentially doing drilling cavities and 
tooth abscesses, extracting teeth. And this was very important, especially in uh, tribal communities, um, sovereign nations across Alaska. And of course, it's relevant to all Alaskans that live very far away from care. And, you know, no surprise, you had the American Dental Association and um, uh, another association essentially sued um, this group and said, look, you can't do that. Um, You're not licensed and trained dentists, kind of a classic scope of practice issue. And ultimately, the dental assistants, in this case, won uh, because, you know, nobody was offering to send dentists out to these places and do that job. And so, you know, the, I think the lesson of this story is that, look, we, we shouldn't have a free-for-all. People are good at what they do. They're licensed. We really take pride in highly trained, uh, high-quality systems. And at the same time, we know that across America, we have places where you simply can't get access to care. And, you know, we can develop very long-term payment strategies, delivery strategy, et cetera, and we, we need to to make sure that we address those gaps. It's a really interesting way of thinking about making connections between different kind of reservoirs of expertise. You know, I think a lot of the conversation around telehealth in this country today is organized around a similar dynamic to the one that you're describing with the dental community in Alaska, which is we don't have enough people who know how to do this thing. So let's use technology to connect the people who need it with the people who know it, even if they're not sitting right next to one another. Have you seen that as a model that you would like to import to this country? Um, Absolutely. And in fact, you know, one of the nice things about that exact question is that Dr. Sanjeev Arora at the University of New Mexico launched something called Project Echo, you know, some time ago. And he's a hepatologist, does hepatitis C treatment. And, you know, before the new generation of drugs, it was a very, uh, you know, challenging treatment course. And even with the new generation of drugs, you got to watch patients carefully. But, you know, in rural New Mexico, there aren't a lot of hepatologists around. And getting to these very limited hepatitis C treatment centers is challenging. And so what they've done is actually create a telehealth infrastructure that, in their own words, demonopolizes the knowledge required to care for hepatitis C patients by general practitioners, nurse practitioners, with the guidance of specialists until they don't need it anymore. And there was a landmark New England Journal uh, of Medicine article that basically showed that on some measures, these newly telehealth-trained general practitioners doing something that really specialists were meant to do actually did a better job in terms of quality and patient satisfaction. Now, that is being generalized, not from only hepatitis C to opioid treatment to a whole range of other things. And along the way, I think that we're going to be encountering really reasonable questions of, are we going too fast? Are we going overboard? Is this the right modality? Is this appropriate? Those are all good questions, but I think that the big megatrend is that we need alternative solutions and people that you know need healthcare should get it. We need to figure out how. And we have a lot of real um, solutions on the table that we need to really look at carefully and understand how they spread. So, you know, in that in that category, to answer it more directly is there's great global models on that, but we're also inventing it here at home. You know, because our reality here, you guys are talking about Alaska versus, let's say, Harlem, where you practice. Standard of care really can vary significantly. I was in a conversation recently with a colleague about that very thing. 
So how does this play for you in Harlem? You walk away or you, you have exposure to all of these different models of care that are happening in underserved areas. How does that work in Harlem where you're surrounded by tertiary care medical centers and plenty of retail medical and urgent care centers? How does it work there? So first of all, you know, it's, it's kind of the brass tacks critical question. You know, if we have so much around us, why do we need to go and look elsewhere? And, you know, what are these missing alternatives? And if they're missing, then, you know, in a very wealthy city, why hasn't some market-based actor filled in the gaps? And I think the reality of spending time being in people's houses in neighborhoods like Harlem, walking with them, seeing their lives as they come home from a clinical encounter, you really start to appreciate that the challenge of living with a chronic condition or the challenge of knowing that your parents have a chronic condition and you would like to find out how do I live a life that uh, allows me to avoid that fate requires a ton of guidance on a day-to-day basis. And so that's, again, why we really focused on the development of a network of health coaches, which Mount Sinai partnered with the organization City Health Works to develop the clinical model, the business model, and the operating model, which City Health Works now trains and manages this network of health coaches around chronic condition management um, and connectivity to social services. And I think what we've realized is that, you know, at the outset, it may not have been an obvious gap, actually. But once you start to have this sort of seamless connectivity, people that are really following um, your patients, understand the community, looping back to affect your clinical decision-making as a physician in a very targeted way, a real mutual appreciation for the costs of care um, and uh, what does it mean to be judicious in terms of time and effort, and yet um, extending the capability of primary care considerably, you really start to see that there's actually a demand coming from the provider side, from the payment side, that says, oh, you know, we didn't know that we were missing this, but this is a category of capability, relationship with community service that is missing. And, um, you know, there's a lot of drivers to help make that grow at this juncture. So you just used one of my favorite words in the English language. I was going to say, you cannot talk about capability <laughs> with Jessica Sweeney-Platt in the room and not get a follow-up question on that. Go for it. So, so we've done a fair amount of research here at Athena Health on this concept of capability. And to try and summarize it, we our hypothesis is that high-capability organizations, those organizations that are really good at equipping the people at the front line of patient care with the right tools and resources and then the latitude to do their jobs and treat their patients in the way that they think best, that they outperform those that don't provide that level of capability on a number of different fronts, whether it's clinician burnout or whether it's financial performance or whether it's patient engagement. And we're in the process of doing a lot of research to try and test those connections. But what I'm hearing you say, and and correct me if I'm misstating you or if I'm misquoting you, but it sounds like this health worker layer, this missing layer that you identified in your community in Harlem is not only sort of adding to the overall accessibility of the healthcare system, but it's actually kind of increasing the capability levels of those who would otherwise be on the hook for caring for these patients in isolation. No, I think that's generally right on. And I put it in maybe a ter- in ways that a, either a physician or a patient 
or a person would would appreciate is that you know especially being if you're being trained in internal medicine or primary care you see a, a patient with diabetes for instance or developing diabetes come in every 3 months for a test and what we don't always just generally expect is that in between those 3 months they have become far more savvy capable and proactive about their care. And in fact, what we often do is, you know, kvetch a little bit about, especially with low-income patients or poorly educated patients that, oh, you know, they're not, not caring for their health, they don't, they're not really engaged in their care, etc. And there's almost a little bit of a disconnect about, well, what's going to make that different between visit in January and a visit in March? Like, what are we doing out there? Um, what's the ground game look like? You know, after five years of any provider being adjacent to and within a community, what is it that that community will collectively know how to do better because it's in the water, so to speak? It's, um, you know, common sense, common knowledge, and you've got that capability that's built up in a community. And so, you know, I think the you've got it right on. The question that I think we have to ask is if we think that it's important to not only be the front lines, but essentially a missing layer that also can kind of permeate and build capability in a community, we've got to ask, like, what is, what is it going to take to do that? What is, in fact, the service? What is the reason? You know, what are the payment models? What uh, is the workflow? And then we can ask the question, is it worth doing that? I think at this juncture, when I look at neighborhoods like Harlem, Bronx, parts of Brooklyn, just surrounded by such an incredible wealth of traditional healthcare systems, that's what led me to write this book, which is just the sheer curiosity as a doctor in training of saying, look, there's something disconnected here. Something's not seeping from one side of this incredible set of knowledge and capability into the other side uh, of a community that needs to have health improved. And you can't really point to you know, five, six-hour differences uh, of distance in that case. There's something more fundamental about how we're organizing our work. Uh, and so I think you really put your finger on it. In in your book, you tell a lot of the, or you teach a lot of your insights through the story of this patient that you call Ray. Can you tell us a little bit about Ray, which, by the way, not his real name. He's actually a, an amalgamation of several different people, I think. But tell us a little bit about Ray and how he factors into your perspective, how his experience and his family's experience factored into your perspective on what's needed to fix healthcare and, and what this missing layer actually means. Yeah, thank you. You know, Ray, um, as you pointed out, is not one real person. But when I think about Ray, I actually think of four real people. And just demographically, they happen to be elderly African-American males. All of them were veterans, actually, um, Vietnam-era veterans. And I met all of them essentially, you know, at the point where they were just entering end of life in the hospital. And I initially thought I was taking care of a complex chronic condition. And the next thing I know, I'm taking care or transferring them to an ICU. Um, and then uh, at least for a couple of them uh, was asked to attend their funeral. And I think that w what really struck me, especially at this time when you're in training and you are you don't yet have the, the habits of what's normal, is that when I went to um, the funeral uh, for Ray, I really got a much better sense of his social context, of his family, 
the story of how he had come back actually after Vietnam to a neighborhood that really didn't welcome him because there were a lot of protests against the war. He faced significant issues getting employment downtown due to racism. And he lived in a neighborhood due to redlining and other uh, kind of structural racist practices, kept him you know, out of an opportunity zone despite being motivated initially and essentially grew kind of despondent and, you know, over time essentially began to live an unhealthy life that led its way into chronic conditions and then into the hospital. And I was just so struck by knowing that story backwards, <laughs> by first taking care of essentially a complex clinical condition and then finding out something about how it really came to exist. And I really was perplexed and troubled that my core training was really at this, you know, at the, um, at the final yard line of a challenging uh, and tragic situation rather than anything earlier. Um, you know, I think that there's a, there's a lot of ways to parse that story. You can say, oh, are you saying that we need more prevention? Are you saying that we need better primary care? And I, I'd say, well, maybe, uh, you know, both of those things, but more broadly, it just felt backwards. Um, and that somehow we were not connecting at the right time uh, at all. And that's what led to trying to figure out how would you do that. What were some of the connection failures that you observed in Ray's story? There are so many stakeholders that are involved in anyone's story. There's the patient, there's the patient's family, there's the people who are taking care of them, there are other people in the community. Can you talk a little bit about where some of those specific failure points were that struck you as most problematic? Sure. You know, let me also compare and contrast to how this might be organized in a global setting. You know, in a global setting, what almost always, uh, and by global, I mean, for example, in low resource settings across um, East or West Africa, there's a really focused effort to define a geography, um, a neighborhood, a village, uh, a district, where all um, actors coordinate around ensuring they know who's there what's missing, what do they need, whether or not there are, in fact, uh, there's anything to do about it. But there's a real deep understanding of where people are and their kind of, what state are they in. And so at a very basic level, what's amazing to me is that, you know, even though we talk about, for example, a neighborhood like Harlem or a zip code these days as, uh, as an important organizing unit, it is in fact not a service unit. It's not a commonly held area where everybody works to ensure over time it improves in terms of health. Lots of reasons for this, but that's just an important distinction. What that practically meant is that we did, um, you know, we writ large, the healthcare system waited for Ray to get sick enough that he would warrant a billing code. And as the billing code uh, you know, increased in value, we paid more attention to him. Um, and that cycle continued in a largely fee-for-service system um, until he was, uh, you know, severely hospitalized and then passed away. Do you think that the work that's being done around value-based care, and I, I think for 10 years now, at least, we've been talking about the move towards value-based reimbursement. But um, nonetheless, are you hopeful? About value-based care, do you 
Um, I think a lot of us are even sick of that term, quite honestly. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> sure. Well, but <laughs> we're, we're raising our raising hands here hand in the here. in the decoding healthcare yeah. uh, podcast booth. Uh, but uh, is it a step in the right direction? Are we? Is, is it the right place where to start? Well, I think you know. It, so first of all, yes, it's a step in the right direction. But it also helps us clarify what won't be accomplished or why it's hard along the way. It's a term that reflects transition. And it's literally a rate. <laughs> you know, it's an equation, you know, outcomes over dollars spent. And it's, it fundamentally reflects a system that's trying to change towards valuing health more. And there's a lot of different ways to satisfy that equation, as we know. But what it really does, at least for us, uh, and as being part of a, a health system that's committed to moving pretty aggressively in that direction. It means that for a primary care physician, instead of thinking about, uh, and their team thinking about 20 people a day that are going to come into the visits, they have to think about you know a panel of 2,000 people and what are they doing for them every day. Now, that's a huge shift. Being capable to actually act upon that shift um, is really hard. <laughs> and there's so many pieces involved that are relics of doing things uh, in a fee-for-service environment, that making that transition is hard. I think people on the ground get a little frustrated at times about being lectured about the theory. And they're really looking for you know a step-by-step, -step, how do we do it? Let's get on our way. It generally makes sense, but you know I would like to just have this be the new normal. And that's hard, especially when all of this is uh, you know still in motion over the course of at least this past 10 years. I'll also just kind of point out that value-based care um, also doesn't necessarily lead us to healthier communities or a healthier country. I think it's a step in the right direction, but it also reveals that there are real limits. Value-based care is usually very tightly defined around what clinical systems can and should do. There is a broader focus about, you know, as people's essential needs, um, otherwise termed social determinants of health. And those two conversations don't always intermix very clearly um, and sometimes create a lot more confusion. But if the purpose of all of this is to move the arrow towards health, a healthier country, healthier communities at much lower cost, I think that this is a step, but we're probably missing a bunch of logical pieces uh, ahead <laughs> to get there. We talk a lot about the, the challenges of data exchange and interoperability on this program. It's kind of a favorite topic of ours. And, you know, as you probably know better than just about anyone, getting the data to move between traditional care settings that are wired and set up to do that is really problematic still. So you're talking about adding another layer to this challenge in terms of getting data to community organizers and individuals. Do you have an, any ideas or do you have the answer for how we get from here to there? What's the thing that gets you most excited on that information front? Because I completely agree with you, and Kevin's going to nod his head too, that, that that is the backbone to all of this. Yeah, you got the big data, and, and now you're talking about the small data, and, and you want to lay the small data, and it makes a lot of sense in, but how do you do that? Well, one thing I will not do is to, uh, you know, on the Athena podcast and to an audience of people that deeply understand, you know, health IT is to, you know, 
pretend that I really deeply understand how you transition our current enterprise system into the future. Um, Fair enough. I'm a doctor too. I know nothing. <laughs> but what I <laughs> about well, that? Feel safe here. Safe but what space. I will do, we don't. This is, safe, this is a safe space. <laughs> but what I will do is come back to a comment that you made about your theory that Athena that empowering and building capability in the front line is one of the most important things you can do in an organization. And if that becomes a guiding principle, then you're facing actually a fairly tight kind of human-centered design and technology question, which is what constitutes the minimal information that you need to motivate action in ways that are aligned with kind of very practical you know, effects that you'd like to see over time. And that itself is a problem set that I just don't see with the vast expenditures in information technology you know, across the U.S., the intensive focus on what is the frontline user doing? What is their cognitive load? How can we allow them to feel more enmeshed with their colleagues and in touch with the people they're caring for as a central problem set? And the reason why this is such a appealing problem set is that when we look in global settings, that's in many ways the only problem set that has framed digital health in, you know, northern Ghana, for instance, or in, um, uh, you know, in Rwanda. You have a huge focus on the front line because there isn't necessarily lines behind the front line, and you have to get contextually timely information out to people in ways that motivate them to act. And that's the problem set. And so as, a, as a learning, you know, learning a whole bunch of different electronic health records, I feel fairly certain that uh, that was not the problem set somebody was solving for when they designed you know, those platforms. Don't tell anyone, but you're absolutely right. That was not the problem that was being solved for. It's, yeah. a, it's a deeply I, held secret. <laughs> and, so, and so I think, you know, this is not the first time I've anybody has kind of put forward. Oh, this is the ta- this is the challenge. What I think, what we're excited about at the Arnhold Institute for Global Health is actually starting a prototype um, platforms that are uh, more visual, intuitive, push information to frontline workers in both global settings um, as well as domestically, so that we just understand the right user behaviors, um, the right linkages and logic that um, can, you know, help inform what you raised, which is how do you build that capability, that intelligence, that motivation in the front lines, and how do you really extend that if you think it's that important? Um, We're in a no position to build, you know, (laughs) that type of enterprise software, and that's maybe where we'll connect what we're doing with what you're doing at Athena. Um, But I... I'm not sure if we're just going to be able to build another limb off of the big trees that we are um, that we've invested in heavily. Um, maybe that's exactly how it will go, but there at least need to be some real significant efforts to um, just really understand the, the how it feels to do this right. Decoding Healthcare is a production of Athena Health. Our engineer, composer, and all-around Mike of all trades is Mike Moschetto. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Athena Health. 
I'm Kevin Ban. And I'm John Fox. 